Welcome to the Craft Brewery Finance Podcast, where we combine beer and numbers to provide you with tips, tactics, and strategies to improve financial results in your brewery. I'm your host, Kerry Shumway, a CPA, CFO for a brewery, and former CFO for a beer distributor. I've spent the last 20 years using finance to help improve financial results in our beer business, and now I'm helping other craft breweries do the same. Are you ready to take your brewery financial results to the next level? Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Craft Brewery Finance Podcast. My name is Kerry Shumway and I'll be your host. Today I sit down with attorneys Jim Keenan and John Moran from Bernstein Schur Law Firm. Jim is an intellectual property guru. He specializes in trademarks to help breweries protect their most valuable asset, their brand. John is a business attorney who helps brewery clients with issues from startup formation to federal and state regulatory licensing and compliance issues. In our conversation, we cover a number of topics. John gives an overview of the trademark process, and he shares one of the very first issues that you need to consider at the outset of starting your brewery. John shares information on the Brew Kit, which is a great resource that John created for helping breweries to start, own, and operate a craft brewery business. It's complete with checklists and timelines and provides a nice, concise summary overview of the key considerations that breweries need to think about. There's something for everyone. So for now, please enjoy this conversation with Jim Keenan and John Moran from Bernstein Schur Law Firm. Jim Keenan and John Moran, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Glad to have you here. So, Jim, if you would, give the listeners some background on your firm, types of service you provide, markets you serve, and uh, types of clients. Sure. So, uh, I've been with the firm for 25 years. Uh, so, I've got a, a, a longer than I'd like to admit history here. Um, the firm is uh, one of the largest in northern New England. So, it's got 100 plus lawyers. It's got a 100 plus year history. Um, and it serves really businesses as a focal point. It, it, we are not really serving individuals. We represent business clients. And I think our size and the breadth of our practice tends to lead um, smaller businesses to think we might not be a good fit. But actually, the vast majority of our business clients are small to mid-sized businesses from startups all the way through mid-size. Um, and we do represent a whole host of industries across a number of practice areas, um, with food and beverage being one of our uh, focused industries. Um, so it's, it's quite a, a broad client base. It's quite a broad uh, uh, practice areas that we have. Um, so it's hard to say exactly what would be an ideal client for us, but I would say probably a growing company that's um, sort of in the mid-size that doesn't have uh, the capacity for internal legal services, but does have a wide range of legal needs. Um, we serve those clients particularly well. Great. Thank you for that. Uh, so I know, Jim, you specialize in or one of your practice areas is uh, relative to trademarks and intellectual property. And obviously, uh, that's a big deal for breweries in terms of trademarking brand names and, and so forth. Uh, just, I guess, generally, do you have general advice for brewery owners about how they should think about trademarks? When should they pursue one? Maybe just some background on how the process works and what kind of protections uh, breweries would get from that. 
Yeah, sure. So um, as you said, I, I, my focus is on intellectual property issues, but really within that it's uh, almost exclusively trademark work. So um, our practice has nearly 3000, actually more than 3000 now trademark filings. And I was looking this morning and um, nearly 10% of those over 300 in the um, alcohol space, the vast majority of those in, in beer. So it's, uh, it's an area we've done a lot of work in and uh, have a lot of experience in. I think my first most important piece of advice is to put this discussion as early as possible in your business planning. It's a uh, certainly pre-revenue. It is uh, pre-corporate organization. I mean, it should be one of the very first things you think about uh, because ultimately your brand, which is what trademarks are intended to help you own and protect, is going to be one of your most, if not probably your most important asset. And getting a line on developing a brand name and, and branding with logos and the like that you can actually own and have exclusive rights to is really important to help uh break yourself off from the rest of the competition in any industry and in breweries, it's hugely important because the market is uh, saturated with so many breweries, so many beer names that thinking about this early is really important. And what happens often is breweries will get excited about a brand name. They'll start to develop the swag that goes, you know, they want to sell in the brewery. They're sort of all guns a blazing on a name. And then they'll go maybe talk to a trademark lawyer and look to protect it. And, they may not be able to, and they may have had led, led themselves down a path where they'll either be taking on more risk than they otherwise would have wanted to, or they've committed dollars to something that they'll find it difficult to unwind. So it's it's not a huge uh, expense up front to talk with the trademark counsel to get an understanding of what uh, you may be able to own and protect and to go through the registration process. So definitely start it early. Great. And it can get, uh, I think, a little complicated in terms of, at least from my perspective, when to pursue a trademark and when not to. I think, you know, you and I have talked a bit about this in the past, but can you rank them in terms of, or are there certain criteria that you think about, like, all right, you have to pursue on these areas, uh, say your brewery name, but maybe others how do you make that distinction or how do you guide clients through the process of, of when to pursue a trademark, what's essential and then what might be? Yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, there's budgets to everything. So, um, trying to do full clearance searches and registering every brand and name that you come up with may not be feasible. It may not even be, uh, make a lot of sense business wise. Usually what I tell clients is that, your core brewery name is likely to be your core brand. Um, so that and any meaningful design logos, I think, should be a priority. You should be looking to you know, pick names that are going to be as clean as possible and, and get those protected. And I would say maybe a decade or so ago, those were really the primary brands for most breweries. And then they would um, tag those with the style of beer. You know, it might be a pale ale, it might be IPA. And and that's obviously changed where there's so many different variations of those styles of beers that breweries want to come up with names for the different styles. And there are times where I think beer names uh, can sometimes almost overpower the brewery name in terms of the brand. And so you, 
you know, especially on premise, you go in and you see the names of beers and you may or may not see the brewery name. And, and so I think the, the beer names that are becoming your flagship brands um, warrant some special attention. And certainly those that may be put into distribution uh, warrant special attention because distributors like to see brand names that have been registered and protected. It gives them some confidence they can get behind a brand, help with the marketing, push it out to the marketplace, and then not find out, oh, we have to now change this. And they're going to have to re-educate you know, their distribution network. So um, you know, for, for those serving primarily on their own premise um, and maybe um, you know, on-premise elsewhere and not in distribution, I probably can sort of at least start and end initially with your brewery and your core logos. Um, but I, I would not just put all beer names sort of in the back burner. I mean, if you're doing a lot of limited editions, seasonals, one-offs, it probably doesn't make sense to register those because by the time you would get the process done, the beer is probably sold out and you're moved on. Um, but those that are here to stay, you should be thoughtful about at least about whether or not you're picking a name you're going to be uh, clear to use because just unwinding the consumer's mind about a brand is, is hard and costly. Great, great points. Uh, I hadn't even considered that about the distribution part of it. You know, distributors, wholesalers wanting those protections as well because, yeah, they're out there helping to make the market and build the brand and you want to make sure that's not going to go away. I think one of the challenges that we've had in our brewery and I've heard from other brewery owners is relative to the the responsibility to enforce your mark. So if you go through the process and you and you and you get your trademark, um, maybe can you speak to that? Who bears the responsibility to enforce that, to to monitor that, um, and make sure nobody's nobody's taking your your trademark? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a great question, and I think I've heard John when we've talked with with clients about this. He said it's it's not a set it and forget it sort of situation. And that's right. Um, it is a cost of doing business. Protecting your brand is a cost of doing business. And so you, let's say you've secured a registration with the trademark office. You've got a piece of paper. It says you officially own this brand. Clients want to think one, that that's the be all and end all if there's ever an issue, but also that people will now steer clear. And, and unfortunately that doesn't always happen. Having the registration makes enforcement infinitely easier than not having a registration, but there still is cost and time to it. And typically what we do is we have, it depends on the, the client, but we have watch services that we offer that if anyone files a new application that's similar, we can approach them right away because talking with someone as soon as possible helps them to unwind sooner than if they get rooted in. So that's important, but also you're setting up Google alerts and things to alert someone in, on your staff if they see something similar. Acting quickly is usually best, um, but ultimately it's the brand owner's responsibility to protect the brand. The reason the trademark exists really is for consumer protection. Is so a consumer when they buy something, they know what they're buying, they're not confused, they know what's inside the can, and it's on you to really make sure that's going to happen. And, and if you don't police your mark and enforce it to some degree, then all of a sudden there are too many other copycats out there and your brand isn't doing what it's supposed to do. It doesn't have, it's not conveying the information you want it to, to consumers. So, um, you know, it's a mixed bag. You have to be, you can't go guns a blazing and suing everybody uh, just because they use a similar name. In fact, that's almost never the right approach. Often brewers can work things out 
amongst themselves. We encourage them to do that if they feel comfortable doing that. Um, and when we talk on their behalf, and our goal is to find amicable resolutions that can work for both parties, sometimes, though, that's just not easy to find because it does mean someone needs to make a change. And, you know, you work through that as best you can. So I'm, I'm curious if you have any advice or guidance relative to trying to come up with a beer name. It seems like it's nearly impossible to find a name that hasn't already been taken. So aside from the the standard approach, which is, you know, we just jump on and do a Google search. Do you have any thoughts on how to find a unique, unique name or how to ensure that no one else has, has already trademarked or, or taken that name? Yeah, I will say that. Um, so one of the things that um, I do day in and day out are what, what are called clearance searches. And there are levels of searches that you can run to help you figure out if someone else has the same name. And I can tell you without question, securing uh, a mark that's clean and can be registered in the brewery space is the most difficult industry. It's just very, very difficult because of the number of breweries, because of the number of beer names. And also because about five or so years ago, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office began to pull uh, breweries and distillers and wineries all into the same bucket. It used to be a wine and a beer brand could actually share a pretty similar name and the trademark office wouldn't consider it to be confusing. But because of the consolidation in the alcohol industry, uh, there are just more and more brand owners that own spirits and wines and beers. And so the trademark office says, well, if there's any wine that has the same name or any spirit that has the same name, then that's a problem as well. So if you take that into all the wineries uh, and all the wine brands, combine that with all the breweries, all the beer brands, it does become really difficult. My advice is just be really distinctive and unique and different. Um, you know, picking names that are sort of geographically descriptive or uh, they can be problematic for a number of different reasons. I mean, some of the marks that just go through easily are ones that are nonsensical. I mean, they're just totally made up names. They have nothing to do with beer. No one would ever think they would have to do with anything. Someone's done some Google searches. You're not seeing that phrase or name. Those are actually the easiest to get through from a legal perspective. They may be the most difficult to brand because they don't mean anything to anyone until you market it. Um, but, you know, trying to gravitate towards things that sound like beer, uh, you're probably going to run into a lot more issues. Mm-hmm. If you look, if you walk down the aisle of the supermarket and you look at some of the big brands, that's why they have nonsensical names or they're made up or they have you know, Apple is used on computers or Acura for a car. It sounds like accurate or something, but it's, it's not really a word. Some of those are make the strongest brands. Nice. So a question, um, I think for you, John, um, let's talk about state alcohol regulations. So since the pandemic began, many states have relaxed those regulations, allowing curbside pickup and e-commerce, home delivery, etc. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense as to whether these changes are going to become permanent or revert back to old regulations? What are you What are you hearing on that? Sure, and and um, just before I, I answer that question, I just uh, want to just give a little background on what I do and compared to what Jim does. So I do a lot of um, federal and state regulatory work and licensing work um, in the alcohol beverage space, liquor licensing, things like that. Um, I do a lot of work on distribution agreements for, uh, typically for brewery clients. 
Um, and I'm also in the commercial financing and kind of private capital space. So when a brewery is looking to raise capital, raise funds or going to a bank or working with an investor, I help, help them navigate that process. Um, and so with respect to this question, just to kind of, you know, the lens that I use to answer this is I think about the, the state's three tier system. Typically each state has its own liquor laws. In the three and it's set up based on three tiers. You have manufacturers, which are breweries, distilleries, and wineries. Um, the second tier is made up of distributors, and the third tier is made up of retailers, on-premise and off-premise accounts. So on-premise bars, restaurants, off-premise is bottle shops, supermarkets, and things like that. Um, so curbside and home delivery are more or less kind of combined. And that's where I've seen the states relax those rules. Um, I've, I've heard some regulators say this has always been available to breweries, um, but they've never offered, wanted to offer that. Um, but my, my reaction was that it was, it's really not written anywhere. Um, when you look into the, the, the statutes and regulations, it doesn't really all specifically allow this. So to, hear that um to get the green light from the regulators that's really what these breweries are relying on um and i think that'll continue uh it doesn't seem like there's going to be some switch some some flip of the switch um on covid-19 so i i think this is going to continue for quite a while being able to order online and and pick up or have it delivered the beer um But e-commerce, when I think of e-commerce, I think of direct shipments, right? Um, And that is very state-specific, and that's not something that is just in the sole discretion of the regulators. It really comes down to to state law allowed or not. Um, Most states allow wineries to have an e-commerce site, have a website where someone can go online purchase purchase the 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 wine products and have them actually delivered by a, a carrier common carrier um, but on the other hand it doesn't allow breweries to do that um, and unless a bill is submitted that actually changes state law the state liquor laws breweries will still not be able to do that so it's kind of a when you see curbside pickup, um, and home delivery, it's more on an, it's, it's within the state, you know, it's not, um, it's a very state specific, um, analysis. Once you think about e-commerce, you're thinking about an in-state brewery sending beer, shipping it out to potentially an out-of-state consumer. And then it's a whole different, different analysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think that state regulations aren't always the clearest. Uh, so is that, is that something you help breweries with in terms of interpretation of regular, like, okay, we would like to do this, this, or the other thing, do the regs allow it? Do you go in and, and make that interpretation? Yeah, quite a bit, quite a bit. Um, the regs, um, they use very, um, it's a completely different vocabulary for most people. Um, and to, th- I like to 
analyze the state liquor laws by using examples to say, how would this play out? You know, what is, what is uh, my particular brewery client want to do and see how it would work. And usually um, I have a pretty good relationship, working relationship with the regulator. So I'm able to give them a call. Obviously don't disclose the brewery client's name or anything like that, but just to kind of play it out. Um, so you kind of get their, their take on it too. I mean, I could, I could come up with an argument, you know, that would say, yes, brewery, you can do this. Um, but sometimes that it doesn't matter. Um, cause I, I could view it one way and the regulators could view it another way. So it's always good, um, to kind of get their blessing on it too. That's and we've also, yeah, and we've also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, John, we've also, our legislative group has been pretty active in helping write clarifying regulations, improving regulations on behalf of the industry for a number of years. So it's, um, yeah, it's an unfortunate, um, the regulatory landscape for breweries is unfortunately complex because there's enough complexity with getting a brewery up and running, but then dealing with how you actually bring product to market is, is a huge challenge. And it's really one of the few industries where you've got the state by state analysis issue. And most businesses do not need to contend with, uh, a completely different legal landscape when they cross borders uh, and, and breweries do. And it, it does make it a real, a real challenge. Mm, absolutely. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, uh, I know your firm has created um, something called a brew kit for breweries. So can you describe what that, that kit is, what's in it and how it may be useful for brewery owners or breweries who are in the planning phase? I'm just going to say our firm did not create that. John Moran created that. <laughs> ah. part of our firm, but he is he is the ultimate architect of that. It's been wonderful. So credit where credit is due. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah I mean, I, I uh, I've homebrewed for several years, and um, when I was first starting to get into the industry um, as a you know say beer attorney, um, I thought it would be it would make some good sense to give, to create some type of handout um, for particularly startup breweries to just take a look at because there's just so much information out there. It's a lot to digest. Um, so, you know, one of my first beer kits was, was, a, was, a, was a brew kit, you know? Um, so I was like, all right, let's, let's call it the brew kit. And basically it's kind of a, it's a guide more or less um, that provides information to these types of breweries in the early stages and kind of walks them through various steps in towards owning and operating a craft brewery, wherever and whichever state they want to be. Um, it talks about entity formation, you know, um, should I form an LLC? Should I form a corporation? Um, talks about, um, you know, how do I go about leasing space or purchasing property where I want to locate the brewery? How do I raise capital? Um, talks about federal and state licensing as well. It's, I've created, we've gotten to the point where we've had so much interest, honestly, that I've created three different editions. You've got the main edition, New Hampshire edition and mass edition. Um, so that, so each edition that contains state specific regs or, 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 you know, information on the regs. Um, and it kind of goes through that. And what it's really meant to do is it's not only to help give startup breweries kind of a leg up. Um, but also obviously it's supposed to show that, you know, we certainly care about the industry quite a bit. 
and we want to give something as at, at no cost and sh- to show folks that we do this day in and day out. So um, I've heard, I've heard pretty good feedback so far on it. So we're happy to hear that. Yeah, it's a great resource. And I, I think you're right. You know, folks who are coming into it, maybe they want to start their own brewery. They start as a home brewer. They have the dream of creating and there's, they get into it and they're like, my goodness, look at all the stuff I have to do. And it's not even like all the things you have to do. It's what order do I need to do these in and how long is each one going to take? And how do I find someone to maybe guide me through certain steps that I just don't know how to do? I can do this and this and this. Maybe I'm good. I want, I want to do the brands and recipe design. Mm-hmm. And maybe I can find a piece of real estate, but I have no idea on entity formation. I have no idea on creating a financial pro forma. So there's, I think that's a, that's a great resource. Is that something we can share with listeners as well to go out? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Um, so, so we'll link to that. From, from what we've seen, um, just as an aside for, for typically startup breweries, it is a lot to take on for one person to do um, from a, a to Z soup to nuts Usually, from what I've seen, the most, say, successful breweries out of the gate usually are, are it's a tag team approach to say you've got somebody who creates great beer, right? They've got the recipes, um, creative in that sense, maybe interested in the brand. And you've got someone on the other side who's kind of business ops saying, okay, I'll, you know, I'll deal with, with Miranda. I'll, I'll deal with legal. You just work on the beer, you know, and um, that's a pretty good approach. Um, not, not to say that you can't do it if you're just a one man band, so to speak, or one woman band. But um, I, I've seen people, it's just a lot to take on. So if you can divide and conquer, it's a, it's a great approach. Mm, absolutely. The other thing that's interesting, I think from a legal perspective is just, there are so many different um, areas of legal with breweries more so than a, a lot of different startups that I do think it's helpful if you're dealing, you know, the way we sort of structure at least at our firm is John tends to be the point of entry and also the point of contact for the brewery clients. And he has regulatory and finance expertise that are specific to that industry, but then, you know, he can go to others in the firm. So we have people that, you know, they draft leases, and, and work on those all the time for brewery clients and or they have a trademark lawyer for brewery clients. And there's a lot more efficiency to that than I think a, you know, smaller firm where you're trying to have a, a lawyer do maybe too many things for you, or the brewery is trying to do too, too much legal themselves, not necessarily from whether or not the legal is getting done right, which is maybe an issue, but it's just a huge time suck. And so you've got a lot to do. You've got to get product to market and you may, may be costing yourself more money by getting overly distracted versus having a resource you can go to and get answers, um, you know, quickly. So that's that's sort of how we we, we structure our, a lot of what we do at the firm in this way among industries where we have real strong industry leaders that are you know one or two people or a group that then can rely on people like me where I do work across a whole host of industries, but I'm in a narrow channel within that and they can call on those folks as need be. And I think it's worked, I think it's worked pretty well because we've been able to work with and keep a lot of startup brewery clients. So, you know, the the more they grow, the more they have capacity to handle 
some of the costs of legal, but we seem to be able to go pretty far downstream as well. So, and John's been really, really, really good about handling that. So I'm curious what, what you guys are kind of learning from breweries during this, this crisis, if anything kind of jumps out, any examples of breweries that maybe were better positioned to withstand the financial side of the crisis or uh, any best practices that other breweries may be able to learn from? Um, so I, I, I think what I'd say first is the breweries who were proactive when, um, in whichever state, whenever their state said, you know, we're going to, we're going to shut you guys down for a certain amount of time to deal with COVID-19. Um, the breweries realizing that their tasting rooms were not going to be open for quite a while and thinking that bars and restaurants, basically they're, they're the, the, the portion of their sales dedicated to draft was going to be basically shut off. Um, the breweries who were proactive and reaching out to their wholesalers, if they had one, their distributors, if they had one, um, and coming up with a game plan on how to deal with the repurchase of that beer because it's going to go out of, out of code and reaching out to their lenders and their landlords to deal with the other payment obligations to figure out if they can postpone them or somehow prorate them. Most of those breweries, I wouldn't say are sitting pretty right now, but have more business certainty as things begin to open up. Um, and I've always, you know, um, advised that they get things in writing, obviously. Um, but it's not, I'm not, I don't, and I don't mean even a legal document. Obviously, that's ideal from my point of view, but just to get some type of email thread from the landlord say, hey, yeah, don't worry about this month's or next month's payments. And we'll deal with it, you know, on this date or we'll tag it on. We'll just extend the lease by those extra, a couple, couple more months. Um, the breweries who were proactive about that gave themselves more business certainty as, as things um, are starting to open up again. Um, and honestly, they've, some of them have gotten a better deal because they might have been the first or second businesses to reach out to that lender or that, that landlord rather than be the, you know, 10th or 20th, you know? Um, so they got out, got out in front of it quite a bit. And, um, in terms of what, um, what I've learned or what I've seen is how breweries have responded, you know, curbside pickup, like we were talking about earlier, it's just been huge. It's been, not not saying that they've been going gangbusters, but it certainly propped up quite a number of breweries to kind of float through this this crisis. Um, and the distributors, um, by and large, have done quite well with their breweries in terms of dealing with that repurchase of Autocode product, um, and just and to kind of give you an example of that or just a sequence of events is you have accounts, you have on-premise accounts who have just bought a bunch of kegs, you know, and they're going through it like crazy. And then all of a sudden COVID-19 comes in. So the state, the state says you need to shut down. So now those bars and restaurants have a bunch of kegs that they cannot sell. And typically they're calling that brewery and, and that their distributor 
almost simultaneously saying, we, you know, can you, can you repurchase this? You buy it back from us. We can't do anything with it. Um, so it's usually the distributors who buy it back because that's kind of the chain of um, ownership brewery to distributor to retailer. So you got to unwind it in that same, that same sequence. Um, but when distributors are repurchasing these kegs from all of these accounts, and then they go back to the brewery to say, okay, usually the distribution agreement talks about a 50, 50 split to say, Hey, reimburse us for 50% of the cost. That's a big number. Um, so I, I've seen a lot of, um, distributors, be pretty patient and and willing to work with their uh, their breweries to, you know, obviously they don't want to bankrupt the brewery. They don't want they you know they want them to survive just as they they want to. So um, that's been um, pretty cool to see. I, I'd say the the first point uh, that John raised in terms of being proactive. I think it's um, even outside of this industry the businesses that have been proactive and transparent and frankly, honest with their business partners, I think have had a lot better go at it. And I think that's actually generally good advice. And it's become more obvious in this situation because very few businesses own the entirety of their business ecosystem. Most are heavily dependent on a whole host of other businesses that they are relying on. And in this particular crisis, everyone was really in the same boat together. And I just, from clients who have had to cancel huge conferences and work things out with the hotels where they had deposits, I mean, it's been, people aren't being cordial just to be nice. Um, There's some component of that, but it's really just good business. And frankly, our most successful clients that have done really, really well are honest brokers. And they, they deal well with their business partners directly and you know the, the legal team is here as need be but you know it's always good practice to have a good working relationship and find ways to resolve it in a business-like way and it's not a time this is definitely not a time you get kg or you know hide your cards or any of those sorts of things and i think that's just generally good advice and it's really sort of come to shine for those who've taken that approach during this particular crisis yeah great points be proactive be transparent uh, have those hard conversations, right? I think that can be that can be a challenge. Just overcoming that initial inertia of oh, I don't want to call my landlord because if he says no or she says no, I mean, but it's kind of the only way. And I think that's also a good point relative to you know this sort of cliche we're all in this together. But from a business, as you said, ecosystem, we really are, and it makes good business for both sides, both parties in this. Because uh, we really do rely on each other economically to keep going, so I've, I've certainly witnessed that relative to distributor relationships, landlord relationships, key suppliers. By and large, people understand it's better for me to work with you and work out an arrangement than to be, you know, play hardball and you're out of business and I'm not going to get anything that I'm that I'm owed. It's so it's it's. Uh, I've been very heartened by that by seeing how receptive not everybody, but how receptive most. Uh, business uh, partners have been a relative to try try to guide uh, you know work through this situation and work together. I think I think that's been been a pretty cool cool thing to see. So yeah, I think you're you're from the lawyer's perspective that that 
way to engage your counsel at a time like this or, or in other events where you're having difficulties for whatever reason, you probably have a host of contractual ob- obligations within that ecosystem to use that term. And it is wise to understand what your rights are uh, before you have conversations, just sort of understand what's the lay of the land. But, um, you know, oftentimes the contract isn't how it's resolved. You know, it's resolved in just ways the parties ultimately agree to that get outside of the contract. So understanding your rights and sort of, you know, what you can or can't do is, is certainly helpful for you to have an intelligent conversation. But, you know, it is not what you need to do or have to do or just because you can turn the screws on the other side, that doesn't mean you should do it, uh, you know, or that if the other side has the ability to do that to you, they will do that. So, you know, I, I do think a, a little bit of guidance to help you understand where you are and then perhaps pursuing those conversations directly is just a really good way to go. If it starts to get too legal too quickly, it sort of loses that. It can lose that sort of the dialogue can just turn in a way that's not as productive. Mm. Yeah, that's, that is true. I've certainly been a party to that as well. And it's not pleasant. So that's, that's a great point is, you know, have the conversations, but do a little bit of, you know, get some guidance relative to contractual rights and obligations. Good point there. So one final question for me, and maybe, you know, John, we'll start with you and, and finish with you, Jim is like, what lessons are, have you guys learned personally, or what are you learning from the crisis? And you can answer it any way you'd like, whether it's business lessons or preparedness and things of that nature. So John, we'll, we'll start with you on that one. Um, I'd say, you know, everybody, I, it just seems to me that, um, zoom is a, is a, is a thing and it's not going away. Um, so there's, um, there's something to be said for, um, you know, person to person, uh, communication, um, in person, unfortunately we can't do that, but zoom seems like the best way to do it. So, um, the the fact that business owners across all different industries are taking advantage of that, I think it adds a, you know, a needed personal touch to continue business operations during this time. Um, it can get cold fairly quickly just through emails and sometimes calls. Um, so I, it's just it's just a good business practice. It seems like, even though it seems a little awkward at first, um, and but when you need when you really need to speak with someone on a particular issue, to do a video call or even just a, a phone call, it goes quite a, quite a ways. It seems it seems to be more successful than than to just sit behind um, and shoot off an email um, on particular issues. It seems seems that the issues get resolved sooner via call or video call. Um, so that's what I'm trying to work on just through my, my practice by picking up the phone to speak with um, opposing counsel if I need to, then to work through it on emails. So I've seen that. Yeah. Using the technology to try to maintain some semblance of that human connection, right? I've found it makes a big difference. You know, I was never, frankly, a fan of Zoom or these things at all. I didn't want to look up my own face for goodness sakes. Um, I just want to, let's do the call. I can, um, but I've come, I've come 180 on that. I, I think it makes a big difference being able to see um, the person you're talking to, see, you know, different 
Uh, we, we do a lot of nonverbal contact, uh, not nonverbal communication. Um, and that, that all gets lost when you're just on a phone. So to be able to see someone, I, th- I think makes a huge difference. So yeah, I've, I, I'm with you on that. I've, I've certainly learned to embrace the technology. Mm-hmm. So Jim, for you, what, uh, what lessons have you learned? Well, um, I always knew being happily married was helpful and boy, <laughs> I still am. So that's good. Uh, no, that, it's been interesting. You know, it's uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people are finding out the dynamics of all their various relationships and hopefully most are finding good things in those. Um, from a, I guess from a business perspective, it's interesting you, you say that about Zoom because I've actually um, so I was really one of the first attorneys to work remotely pretty much on a full time basis. And I, so I've been doing this work from home thing for a long time. And I also have a client base that um, not so much in the brewery space, although there as well, but in, in other industries that is really national and global. So I work with a lot of people, a lot of people I've never met. And I found I've, this has been probably the last decade in particular, more and more clients are coming in from uh, in particular, outside the country, they, they are introduced to me as sort of their U.S. counsel for things. And what I've been really interested in watching is how to build trust inside that environment. And so and really pre pre Zoom. And, you know, a lot of that is on things like emails and calls. And what I have found is just if you do what you say, um, and you build trust really quickly. I mean, if you tell people what you're going to do for them, you do it well, you're responsive, you know, it does, you, you do take away the need for some of that personal interaction that is important, but those personal interactions and, you know, so-and-so being a, you know, good guy or a good gal, and they're great to get along with and drink a beer with, but they don't actually do what they say they're going to do. or They're not responsive. They're not timely from a business perspective. I mean, it's not, you're not building the sort of trust you want to have. Um, they may stick with you because they know you now. I don't know. I've been really, I think a lot of people are now trying to figure out how do I build relationships without that actual personal interaction. And I think it may be a good thing because I do think it turns up the pressure on you to deliver because ultimately that's probably why someone's calling you as a business. You know, they want their product in on time. You know, they want their services delivered when you said you were going to deliver them and no amount of, uh, you know, rounds of golf are going to fix that. Um, so I do think though with zoom, it is, it's been nice for me because I have, because I've been working at home, um, and I was dealing with people in the office, I was reluctant to do sort of a face to face because honestly, I was probably a bit more casual looking because I could be than some of the others. I didn't want them to think that made me you know, any less efficient or, uh, you know, my expertise running less because I didn't happen to be in a suit. Um, and now you get to like what we're facing today, although your listeners won't hear it, you know, we're all casually dressed and people are seeing each other and the, the kids walk by or the dogs walk by. I think it really has humanized people, even though it's not a personal, you know, one-on-one relationship, it's actually probably a more human relationship in a lot of ways you're inside people's houses you're seeing things and i think that's really difficult for people to deal with at first but i think it softens things in a in a positive way Mm. yeah you have to let your guard down a little bit and kind of show your quote unquote your warts so to speak right it's like we're not all perfect and you know things don't always go right and 
Um, so yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think we, we connect at a different level. It, it seems to me that in business, you know, and, and particularly dealing, you know, I, I'm a CPA and, you know, my past life having to wear the, the tie and the jacket and, um, present yourself in a certain way. And I think that's sort of fallen away now. We're really like, let's just get to the substance of, of what it is that we're talking about. And to your point, all people really care about is you do what you're going to, you say you're going to do, you know, and you've got my back. If you're my attorney, you know, you're looking out for my best interest. You're following up on what needs to be done. You know, whether you're wearing a t-shirt or a tie doesn't, you know, frankly, that's all superficial anyway. Um, so I'm a fan because I prefer to wear a t-shirt than that, than that tie anyhow. Yeah, it's funny. I we, we I, when I first started at the firm um, full time, it was pre dot com, you know, boom bust sort of. So I did a lot of work with technology. That's my first sort of interaction with intellectual property as a technology space. And so uh, a couple of us at the firm in that space were the first to take off the suits because it just that wasn't how the client base dressed and all that. But we became one of the first firms to really go that way and. People still wear suits. Some people like them or they may have a context where it, it makes some sense. But, um, yeah, we've really sort of tried to focus on the substance, um, which, you know, I think is great. And I think when the time came on, it was Friday the 13th when our CEO said we need to work from home. We had done a pretty good job preparing for that. And I think people had been already starting to work remotely at least a few days a week because we gave them the flexibility to do that. So the transition was as smooth as it probably could be. Um, and I just think it's nice. I do think the world's sort of gravitating in that direction. And I, I think it is overall a good thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I thank you guys really very much for your time. Great information today. I think a lot of good takeaways for brewery owners, managers, a uh, lot, lot they can, uh, they can learn from you guys. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you or learn more about your practice, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, I'd say, um, you know, obviously you can, you can Google us and it'll, it'll bring you right to our, um, personal bios on our law firm's web, web page. But, um, they could, you know, they can shoot me an email, jmoran at bernsteinshire.com. They can, um, call me, uh, 207-228-7105. Um, you, you know, I'm, I'm around, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Got up a Zoom meeting with you. Yeah, ex- absolutely. Whatever you want. <laughs> yeah uh and i think your brew kits are available online john is that correct that's right yep at, at your bio is that yes it is you have to go through a couple of different pages to get there so uh, i just say google it brew kit and you could and type in my last name moran m-o-r-a-n it'll, it'll pop right up awesome we'll put those links in there so jim john again thanks so much for the time appreciate you being here yeah thanks for having us Thank you for listening to the Craft Brewery Finance Podcast, where we combine beer and numbers so that you can improve financial results in your brewery. For more resources, tools, guides, and online courses, visit craftbreweryfinance.com. And don't forget to sign up for the world-famous Craft Brewery Finance Newsletter. Until next time, get out there and improve financial results in your brewery today.